here we're just waiting for the Lord to come back and uh, because Acts 2 is such a, a nesting ground for all false doctrine and so many different religions we're just taking our time going through here and we've arrived at a very very interesting place and today we'll read verses 36 through 47 therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart, and said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. For the promise is unto you and to your children and to all that are far off, even as many as our Lord, as the Lord our God shall call. And with many other words did he testify and exhort, saying, Save yourselves from this untoward generation. Then they that gladly received his word were baptized, and the same day there were added unto them about three thousand souls. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. And fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done by the apostles. And all that believed were together and had all things common and sold their possessions and goods and parted them to all men as every man had need. And they continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. This is an amazing portion of scripture because it was very, very brief time that this took place. It was very, very brief that they had favor with all the people and they had a just a wonderful time and everybody was glad in that because the persecution started just immediately after that and that was the end of the game right there. Or let's say it was the beginning of the game when they began to be witnesses out throughout the world. But anyhow, we're, we're coming back now to verse 36 and we're going to have an interesting study, I believe. Uh... There's certain things in here that uh, even Peter didn't tell us about. Now, there's certain things Peter didn't even know about. Peter still didn't know about the church. He didn't have the revelations that the Lord gave to Paul. It wasn't his time and it wasn't his place. But what Peter did do and what he did say was just exactly what the Lord had wanted him to do and exactly what he put in his word. Now, in verse 37, there's a peculiar expression. It says they were pricked in their heart. Now, we know there's got to be at least 
3,000 people there because that's how many that same day were added to the church. So there was more than 3,000 people. And at least 3,000 of them were pricked in their heart. Another time that expression pops up is in Acts 9.5. Let's see that just a second. In Acts 9.5, we have the apostle to the Gentiles had that said to him. It was the apostle Paul, whose name was Saul at the time. And in verse 5, after the Lord had thrown him off his horse and blinded him, and he said, Who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. Okay, there we have that expression again. Pricked in the heart. Kicking against the pricks. Now, this is going to show us what happens when the Holy Spirit takes God's word home to a heart. Now, Hebrews 4.12 gives us the weapon, the thing that makes the prick in a heart. Now, Hebrews 4.12 says, The word of God is quick, it's living, powerful, and sharper than any two-edged sword. Now you're thinking big. But piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit. We go spiritual right away. And of the joints and marrow. And is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. This is a scripture I think that most of us know. We're very, very familiar with it. And it's speaking about the word of God. And all of us have this word. We carry it around, we lay it on the dining room table, on the kitchen table, in the bedroom, and whatever. And you know, as it lays there with its cover closed, or even with the pages open, it doesn't do a thing. Nothing. It's just paper. It's full of words. Now, the words are precious. The words are God-given. And you've got to read the words. And then if... If the Holy Spirit is not present or does not favor to make these words anything to you or to whoever reading, it's still a dead book. We don't worship this book. The only way this book has life is if the word of life, the word of God, the one that's in the first verse of John, accompanies the written word. This word is about the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay. Now we're talking about the convicting work of the Holy Spirit. I know most commentators don't use that word. But they were pricked in their heart. Many, many at one time. We read then how one was stopped by the Holy Spirit and the Lord says it's hard for you to kick against those pricks, those pricks in the heart. Now, there is a certain work that the Holy Spirit does when he begins a work on anyone and turn to John 16. 
If we were just going to tell the story and eliminate the work of the Holy Spirit, you could say, yeah, they had, so they were convicted. Or, but that's not what happened. The Holy Spirit actually touched the hearts of these through a preached message. Now look at, start with verse 7. Our Lord speaking to the apostles, to his disciples, close to the time when he was about to leave them, and they were kind of sad, you know, in, in chapter 14, how that was the sad chapter, let not your heart be troubled. Well, this is a continuation. And he says, nevertheless, I tell you the truth, as it, it is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you, but if I depart, I will send him unto you, the Comforter got to be the Holy Spirit. He is a comfort. And when he has come, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Of sin because they believe not on me. You see, if you don't know Christ as your substitute, the one who was the sin bearer, you're not going to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ if you don't know anything about that. If you don't know that you have any sins that you can't get rid of, one way to get rid of your sins is to come to know the Lord Jesus Christ who is our sin bearer. I'm not saying you're going to get rid of memories. I'm not saying you're going to get rid of a lot of burdens. I'm not saying you're going to get rid of even your sinful self. No, you're never going to get rid of that. But in God's book, in God's eyes, you are going to be sin-free because it's going to be imputed to you. It's going to be a transaction that is not physical. If you have sinned, the Bible says what you sow you're going to reap and you're going to carry that with you to the grave or to the rapture. One. But to know the Lord Jesus Christ and the forgiveness of sins is the most wonderful thing that can happen to an individual. Verse 10, of righteousness, because I go to my Father and you see me no more. Our righteousness is seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. The righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ, which pleased the Father, which made the Father on several occasions even voice it so that they on earth could hear it, said, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. I was well pleased in his birth. I was well pleased in his childhood. I was well pleased when he became a toddler and started getting into things. I was well pleased when he was seven and eight years old. I was well pleased when he was a teenager. I was well pleased when he was a young man of 19 and 20. And I was well pleased when he was 25. And right now when he's beginning his ministry and in the middle of his ministry, I'm well pleased with him because he did not sin. You and me will never understand that. We will never, never understand a sinless life. Talk about a miracle. So many things in here are miraculous. Like Brother Hale read the other night about the axe head falling in the water and then uh, Elisha just cast a stick on the water and the axe head came up. Oh yeah, that's a great miracle. You know, that's something different. But listen, I'm talking about, <laughs> talking about a sinless life. All the way through. Never once to sin. And then the great reward, and talk about a reward, is to have to carry the sins of you and me, which are mountainous. And he did it with joy. It says with joy he looked forward to the cross. That we'll never understand. 
nothing will we in our flesh be able to understand really spiritually in this life because it is so far out. All we can do is by faith is to believe this word, believe what the Holy Spirit teaches us about, and rejoice and know that our God, the God of creation, does what he pleases and anything he wants to do. A sinless man, the God-man. Just hard to understand. Now, judgment because the prince of this world is judged. Now, Satan was literally exposed at Calvary. A lot of people think he was obliterated at Calvary. He was not obliterated. He isn't chained. We know he's conquered. We know that he's at our Lord's disposal. Our Lord has given him much power. You don't understand that. A lot of folks don't. They say, well, the Lord has all power. Yes, he has all power. He denominates it out. And Satan has a big chunk of that power that our Lord gave him specifically for the plan and purpose that he alone knows. You say, oh, it would be so much nicer if there was no devil and I wouldn't be tempted. Well, they're going to find that out in the millennium. They're going to find that out in the millennium. They're going to find out that that wicked, natural, normal human heart can devise its own ways of getting into mischief without having to blame it on Satan. That'll happen. I say that because it says at the end of the millennium when Satan is turned loose again just for a short season, the whole world was after him. After him to follow him. Something kind of wrong with the human heart, isn't there? Okay. So the work of the Holy Spirit is to touch hearts. It's to convince them of sin, convince them of righteousness, and then convince them of judgment. Every individual that the Lord's heart, that the Lord's finger ever touches, feels condemned and fit subject for hell. I'm not saying that you feel like you want to go there. Nobody wants to go there. But you do become a believer then in hell. You be become a believer in heaven and hell both. And the more the Lord teaches you about yourself, the more fit you see yourself to be in hell. Because of your dislike for holiness, your dislike for God's word, your uninterest in the things that are eternal. You know, because we're so involved with eternity, with the life to come, with the promise of a new body, a very spiritual body capable of interspace travel, interplanetary travel rather, that should be the main concern of our hearts and lives. It should be our main concern in the morning, at noontime, and at night, to think what God has prepared for his people. And alas, how few times during the week do we give it a thought. Right? Very few. Now, let's get back to Acts 2, and let's look at the message that this pricking of the heart came with. Acts 2, verse 23 and verse 36. Verse 23, Peter speaking. Him, meaning the Lord Jesus Christ, being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. Well, I see there that in, in preaching a real sermon, 
we're going to have the sovereignty of God. <coughs> the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. He was not taken by surprise. It was not that he was trying to escape or that he was going to live on and on and on. This was a particularly determined moment and God's foreknowledge knew every element about it. So part of the message was God's sovereignty. Now what's the rest of this verse? Ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. Uh-oh. Man, don't like this part now. What you mean, wicked hands? I didn't do that. The Romans did it. Or the Jews wanted it, and so the Romans did it. Uh-uh. Remember, he's speaking to 3,000 and more people here. Ye, every one of you, have taken by wicked hands, and he could have expounded and went on with wicked hearts and wicked minds and wicked actions and wicked lives. Because the hands only do what the mind and the heart devises. By wicked hands and crucified and slain. Alright, then a message contains the sovereignty of God. It also contains the depravity of the human heart. Verse 36. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus, whom ye have crucified. Who's the blame on? It's on ye. It's on you and on me. You see, as we read this message, the wicked hands belong to you and me. Whoever is an object of salvation has wicked hands, and verse 36 says, ye have crucified. Now listen how this applies. You and I know that we weren't there, and that we did not touch him. We did not do anything that we know of. But the Lord Jesus Christ had to be crucified, and he had to die in order to bear our sins. You see, at that one offering, he bore the sins of the whole church. If you don't know what I mean by the church, then let's say by the whole body of Christ or by the bride of Christ. He was the sinner substitute. This, all the sinners that were ever going to be saved and whom God knew and has determined who would be saved and has elected all those sins were taken by our Lord Jesus Christ by imputation. The Bible says he bore our sins in his own body on a tree. In Isaiah it says he made his soul an offering for our sins. The ye and wicked hands belong to you and me. At this particular outing, when it was being said, it was speaking to a crowd of people who were Israelites. Because he says, therefore let all the house of Israel know. Now, it says, when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart. And that's a wonderful, wonderful thing to happen. Now, people say that, oh, it's so terrible, the things I hear about Holy Spirit conviction. 
You know, when, I, when they, different ones are so miserable when they're coming to Christ, uh, it's a misery and it's a glory at the same time. Because to be awakened, to have your heart stricken in this fashion, I'm going to show you another fashion in a moment, but in this particular fashion, when it would make them to cry out, what shall we do, is the second greatest blessing in the world. The first greatest blessing in the world follows this when the Lord has brought you down through Holy Spirit conviction and you finally had a cry for mercy. He gave you a cry and he gave you faith to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. But it doesn't happen instantaneously from one to the other. You couldn't even begin to count your sins up in a day or so. The Lord brings things back to you, keeps bringing things back to you, and then, for hearts that think that they have been pretty good, you know, led good, clean lives, been brought up by very nice, clean families, the Lord is going to show you from within your own heart the guiltiness that you have and the capability that you have of every type of sin that there is. Many, many people who have been living in sin and have been down under quickly come to the Lord. This is mysterious. They know where they've been. They cry unto the Lord and the Lord delivers them. And self, Some self-righteous person whom the Lord has brought under conviction, awakened them, and they just keep expecting the Lord to save them Oh, I'm going to cry. I cried today and I cried tomorrow and I cried last week and I'm going to keep on crying. They think they deserve to be saved. And Lord never saves anybody in that condition until they come to the end of their road and they have a cry for mercy that comes out of their heart sincerely. They have cried so many times insincerely that they don't even believe themselves. But the Lord knows that heart. And when that heart is desperate for him and him only, he reveals himself to you. Okay, now, another thing that had to do with the message that led up to the pricking of the hearts was scriptural proof of the resurrection of Christ. You see, in the middle of this message, Look at verses 28 through 36. Uh, verse 29. Uh, Men and brethren, let me freely speak unto you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his sepulchre is with us today. And therefore, being a prophet, and knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne. We spoke about thrones last week, or two weeks ago. He, seeing this before, spake of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in hell, and neither his flesh did see corruption. Peter was taking this, the Psalms and expounding them to him, saying, Now you know the Old Testament. Uh, you have all, all know these scriptures. See, it says many other words he said to him, And then he said, Now this meant that the Lord Jesus Christ's soul was not going to be left in hell, and he was going to raise again. The resurrection is the the foundation stone of salvation. I want to show you that in just a moment. Look, well, I'll show it to you right now. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 
14. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 14. If you want to start with verse 12, we can get it all there. Now, if Christ be preached that he rose from the dead, how say some among you that there's no resurrection of the dead? <laughs> no matter how small the group or how big the group, there's always somebody in there that's going to needle what you say. We can preach here now, say that there is a resurrection from the dead, and the Bible says this, and it says that about the change and everything. And somebody will say, I don't believe it. This is what happened here, too. But if there be no resurrection of the dead, then is Christ not risen. And if Christ be not risen, then is our preaching vain, and your faith is also vain, and listen, no hope. No hope. That means the Bible is full of lies. And all the preachers down through the generations and centuries have been lying. That all the books that are written about the Lord Jesus Christ aren't fit to be read. But you see, there's too many witnesses for the Lord Jesus Christ and his resurrection. Just stacks and stacks of fantastic books written by the Puritans with the guide of the Holy Spirit. This word preserved telling us that the Lord Jesus Christ is risen, is at the right hand of God right now as our intercessor, not as king of the world, not on David's throne, but as our intercessor. Stephen saw him. No resurrection, no hope. Now, here's another interesting little section about this. I'm going to speak about the sovereignty of the Holy Spirit. Now, we read two scriptures in Acts 2. I read, Him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken him by wicked hands, have crucified and slain. And then over in verse 36, Then therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now he says, Ye have crucified by wicked hands. You've crucified. You've slain him. He laid it on them. He didn't spare them any. They were pricked in their heart and they said, what shall we do? Now I'm going to show you an almost identical situation. Almost identical. But see how the Holy Spirit operates here then. And I want you to turn to Acts 7 and look at verse 51. Stephen was taken not just the scriptures, but he was taken the whole history of Israel because he was speaking to a religious group. He started and he went from one end of, of Israel's history to the other. And when he got to verse 51, he says, Ye stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, ye do always resist the Holy Ghost as your fathers did, so do ye. Which of the prophets have not your fathers persecuted? And they have slain them which showed before of the coming of the just one, of whom you have been now the betrayers and murderers. It's almost like saying ye with your wicked hands have taken and slain. And then he goes on, he says, and who have received the law by the disposition of angels and have not kept it. God gave the oracles or this word of God to the Jewish nation to keep. And though they were the keepers, they did not keep it themselves. 
But what happened? How is the Holy Spirit sovereign in the actions of these two two messages? Two Holy Spirit-filled men preached messages. We just read about Peter, how 3,000 were pricked in their heart, and later on we see those that gladly heard the word, the Lord added those 3,000 to the church. But now look what happened here. Something altogether different. You think, huh, if it happens once, it should happen all the time. All you got to do is get up and preach, and the Holy Spirit will reach down and save them. It says, when they heard these things, they were not pricked in their heart. They were cut to the heart by that same word, that same two-edged sword. One side is for salvation, the other side is for judgment. Two sides of that sword. They were cut to the heart, they gnashed on him with their teeth, and look at verse 59. They stoned Stephen, calling upon God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. I'm telling you, the Holy Spirit is sovereign. And then if you want to turn the page over and look at the first verse in, the, in chapter 8, you're going to see an interesting little sentence there. And it says, And Saul was consenting unto his death. You know what Saul was consenting to? He was gnashing on him with his teeth, saying that he was a blasphemer, that nobody sees God. And that uh, that person that he said he saw, the Lord Jesus Christ, standing at the right hand of God, he's just making that up. He's a big liar and he deserved to die. And yet he did say something that may have stuck in Paul's heart. Because in verse 60 it says, And he kneeled down and cried with a loud voice, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. And when he said this, he died. Oh no, don't say that, does it? It says he fell asleep. The language of this scripture is beautiful. God always speaks of the death of his saints as sleeping. Sleeping. You know why? Because you can be awakened out of a sleep. You're not awakened from death. You're quickened from death. You know, you have he quickened who are dead. But you can be awakened out of sleep. I think the scripture way of saying many, many things is just absolutely beautiful. Now, when we get back to Acts 2 next week, we're going to talk about verse 38, this instruction by Peter. Now, many, many religions today like the camp right here. This is it. I want you to just repent, which they don't even know how to describe. And I want you to be baptized and you receive the Holy Ghost. You don't realize that there's a progression as the early church was developing. This was exactly what happened when John the Baptist baptized people. They went in, confessed their sins, they were baptized by him, and they were supposed to have remission of sins. I want you to remember that nobody's sins were forgiven until the Lord Jesus Christ died. I want you to remember that. He was the sin bearer for the sins of his people for all time. Remission of sins and forgiveness of sins are two different things. You can hold them off for a year. Year after year, they brought sacrifice. They were remitted. They're only forgiven in the Lord Jesus Christ. So there's some interesting things here. I want to show you through the scriptures how, what repentance is, 
What about baptism? And what about remission of sins? How do people get saved? Well, we find out later, even in the same book, the same book of Acts, they say, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Peter didn't say that. He didn't say anything about that. He said, I want you to repent, confess your sins, just like John Baptist told you, and be baptized, and the Holy Spirit should come. Peter was learning. Peter had a lot to learn. That's powerheads. <laughs> Father, we thank you this morning for thy extreme goodness and mercy to us. We thank thee for this word. We thank thee for this people this morning. We thank thee for our place of worship. And we ask that thou will teach all of us as we go. We're in the end times. We're close to the end times. And our hearts feel that we do this word practically no justice at all. It's so rich and so full. And occasionally we stumble upon a beautiful word or a beautiful sentence that just strikes our heart. And it may not mean anything to anybody else. But at least we're in it and they're in it. And we pray that thou will give us all a desire to read God's word just a little bit. To see thy mercy to sinners. To see thy great plan. There is a plan of salvation, but it's thy plan. It's not man's plan. And we thank you that you have the foreknowledge and thou dost the electing, that thou hast given sinners to do the preaching and teaching, and that thou dost have mercy upon individuals. Thank you again for those that came this morning. We pray for the following service also. We ask in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen.